0: Hi everyone and welcome to episode 71 of Shaman Talk. My name's Rhonda and I'm your host. And this week we're on to week two of our Drama Triangle series. We're looking at the saviour this week. And I really do resonate and have worked very hard on my um, connection to the saviour archetype. It was something that in my life was, and still does rear its ugly head now and again I have to say, really was prevalent. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to talk a bit today about the saviour slash rescuer archetype, what it means, what it looks like, the types of things that you can watch out for. I'm going to talk about if you're a healer and work in the healing realms, why it's really important to work with this yourself and why. So I'm going to have a, going to have a chat about that. And then we're going to have a look at some practical things that we can do to start to shift ourselves out of the saviour. And now I know um, that many of the people I work with suffer from the bonds that a saviour archetype creates. Um, Victim last week was really eye-opening for me, even some of the research that I was doing, I found really interesting. And there was another layer, even for me, doing the research for that. And I I, I found the same this week with the saviour. It's just great to revisit You know, if you've already done this work or you're aware of this work, it's always good to revisit. There's always another layer. There's always more to learn, I think. But if you're brand new, we're going to start at the beginning and we're going to talk about what is a saviour or a rescuer. I'll use um, either word today, saviour or rescuer, but they mean the same thing. It's just within the drama triangle, you'll see sometimes you'll see it called the saviour and sometimes you'll see it called the rescuer. So it's the same thing. So here's a a quick one-on-one on on the rescuer. So rescuers get involved in other people's lives um, by making assumptions about other people's needs. They step in to help before anyone has asked them for anything and they're really looking for recognition, approval and external validation. They believe that other people really need them and they impose their solution on the situation And in doing so, they prevent others from solving their own problems themselves. And, unfortunately, one of the real dark sides of the saviour archetype is a moral superiority, feeling superior to people, being the one that knows how to do things and always is the one that can solve, feeling good, feeling morally superior. Since rescuers feel responsible for the happiness and well-being of others, they immediately strive to comfort pacify or calm people down so these people don't get to feel their disagreeable emotions like pain or disappointment or sadness. So that really, can be really disempowering for someone's process. Another key thing to watch for is that rescuers want, usually want to have good relationships with everyone. They like harmony. They do not, cannot cope with conflict. So they avoid conflict at all costs. They don't stand their ground. They give in, always, even if they end up wasting their time, money or energy. So no boundaries. Very little boundaries. And they have a tendency to be people pleasers in order to avoid criticism and rejection. Because really that's what drives a saviour, is the need to feel accepted and loved by everyone. And we'll look into why that happens later in the podcast. So for all these reasons, saviours are usually disconnected from their own emotions. Therefore, a key thing to watch for if you're wondering if you're a saviour or if you know a saviour, is that it's, it's really difficult to have quiet emotional intimacy in a relationship, whether that's romantic or friendship. They will always be busy. They will always escape into doing things. The evidence will be in their diary. They'll, they'll never have a minute. They're always busy. Usually busy doing things for other people, not for themselves, is the key here. So often, saviours will be in codependent relationships. They need a victim. Saviours need a constant supply of victims in order to fulfil their deep drive for external validation. So they'll One of the best ways that saviours find to externally validate themselves is to get themselves into either a romantic relationship or a very close friendship with a victim. And that can be very damaging for both the victim and the saviour. Rescuers have an imperative need, a deep drive to feel useful to cover up their anxiety and low self-esteem. So really they're looking to give their life meaning through helping other people. And I'll talk more about that later in terms of healing because often rescuers and saviors end up as in the healing field, if you will, whether it be our field, shamanism, Reiki, you know, light worker, hands-on healer, tarot reader, whatever it is, also nurses um, teachers, people who end up in a caring profession, maybe not so much teachers, maybe that's not quite not quite right actually, but certainly nurses and those in the caring profession often have saviour tendencies. But they never stop giving because they don't know how to say no. But if they do say no, they'll feel wracked with guilt. It'll be so overwhelming and then they'll label themselves as selfish And become a victim. So they're victimised by their own lack of boundaries. They prioritise other people's needs. Ignoring their own. Because they project onto others their own unmet needs. And usually saviours don't have any clue what their needs and desires even actually are. So in short, they sacrifice themselves. Because they want to prove that they are good generous, selfish people, selfless people who deserve love and recognition which on the surface you know, sounds not necessarily like like a bad thing you want to help people, you want to be available to do things that other people might not manage for themselves but it's when it's pathological here guys right, so I'm not saying that we don't when we get to the escaping the saviour archetype i'm not talking about you know, helping people i mean obviously um i help people all the time but it doesn't mean that i'm in a saviour place i'm not trying to fix anybody and i'm not doing it for external validation um, <clears throat> but what happens with the rescuer with the saviour is that they end up really resentful and irritated they usually don't receive the same support back that they give Because the people that they're supporting are deep victims and can't even look after themselves, never mind anybody else. So there's a resentment and an anger that builds up, usually at the victim, and then they switch to the perpetrator. However, um, really the resentment and anger isn't at the victim, really it's at themselves for not being able to know what they need, have boundaries, say no. So there's a whole projection issue in there as well. So I'm going to talk a little bit now about my um, journey with the rescuer archetype in terms of my my work, my healing work, and maybe a little bit about just my life in general. Um, You might have listened to the podcast about how it talks about being a control freak, and the control freak really does marry in usually really well with the saviour archetype. They usually go hand in hand, actually, in my experience. So you can go back and listen to the Control Freak one. But let's talk about it in terms of my work. So I had a deep um, drive to help other people. I wanted to save the world. That's all I wanted to do was help people. And that's all I did in my life. In my family, um, I was the one that... I'm the oldest of four kids. Um, I'm the oldest of my generation as well and I was just in charge I just fixed things and did things Um, especially after my dad died it got it got worse I would say Um, I just became the fixer and the doer of things and it was very much to the detriment of myself but what that drive gave me was a need to help people more than just my family, more than just the odd way that I felt like i was I wanted to be bi- I wanted to be a big helper. I felt like it was my destiny in this world to help other people and that 's what made me embark on a deep journey of self mastery and healing through shamanism, so it was a blessing in a way because if i didn 't have that drive i wouldn't have i wouldn't be where I am now so after you know, everybody knows the story probably by now, but after the the tra- the training, I just I worked full-time as an accountant, running companies, and built a business, and now I have manifested my ultimate life. I work, this is my full-time job, I don't do anything else, I completely focus on my practice and bringing through the teachings from my spirit guides. But in the beginning, when I first launched my practice, I would see... Um, Clients, one-to-one clients. That's all I did at the beginning. And I started to notice a pattern. I was attracting a lot of victims who at first seemed really keen to do a session, but really I was getting limited results because they weren't willing to take responsibility for what was happening in their lives or take action to change it. Now, that wasn't every client. There were a few memorable clients, people that I'm probably still friends with now, um, who came to me right at the beginning, who really did benefit massively from the work. But 70%, I would say, of the clients that, I, that were coming to me at that time were, were victims who were just looking for somebody with a magic wand. And the reason I was attract, attracting these types of clients is because I was attached to the results and I was doing these sessions with the intent to fix people and to change them. I was trying to save them. Now, my ultimate desire was to work with people who would take full advantage of the tools and resources that I was providing or planning to provide. Because all this that we do now wasn't, didn't exist then. But it was in my mind. And I thought, how am I going to work with people and I got quite despondent and I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand what was happening or why I was attracting clients like that. I thought, well, maybe it's just the profession that I'm in. Maybe it's just shamanism. Maybe these are the types of people that work with shamanism. I don't know. And I, I was then, I started to become victimised by my lack of connection and success with my clients. So rather than be kind of broken down or put off or... Um, I just thought no, I'm not doing something right here. I've missed something, There's something here that's missing. I need to find out what it is. So I went through a process, stopped seeing clients for a few, not long, just a few weeks, like a month, I think. Did some deep journey work, some deep ceremonial work, really checked in, and then it came to me in a flash through some reading. A few, you know how synchronicities happen. So I read a couple of books. I heard somebody mention the drama triangle and pass in I'm sure it came up in my training but obviously I wasn't ready to hear it then and just everything kind of fell into place and I was like oh my god I'm a saviour I'm a saviour that's why this is happening so I spent that time in ceremony working with my guides you know doing some healing various things and I changed the way that I worked I set up very clear intentions for the type of people that I wanted to work with. I set up boundary lines, energetic boundaries for the types of people that I wanted to work with, and I began attracting more responsible, empowered clients. I didn't feel like I needed to rescue, fix, or save other people. Everyone who started to come to me was willing to meet me halfway. And the results that they experienced were due to how open and how willing they were to take action. It was nothing to do with me. I'm, I'm, I'm a doorway. I, I just open a door and people walk through it or they don't. So at that point, I really felt my practice took off. To my amazement, the more I detached from the need to fix other people and the more I detached from the results, the more my clients started to report life-changing breakthroughs and healings. So if you're a healer, or you want to become one in some form do work with the rescuer archetype if you are one of these who i want to heal the world and everybody in it i want to fix everything if you're one of them use that the power of that to drive your passion but do look at the dark side and try and overcome that and you'll find the integrity of your work will increase tenfold So, let's have a think about um, saviours and and some of the reasons why we end up in this mess, as I call it, in my mess, my saviour mess. So, saviours usually grow up in families where their dependency needs are not acknowledged or met. So, it's a psychological fact that we treat ourselves the way that we were treated as children And the the budding saviour or rescuer grows up in an environment where their needs are negated. So their needs are put to the side. So they tend to treat themselves with the same degree of negligence that they experience as children. They don't have permission to take care of themselves. Their needs go underground and then turn instead they kind of turn to taking care of others. So for me, that looked like very, dis- you know, again, this story is out there in a lot of podcasts, so I'm not going to tell the story again about my childhood. But for me, as the oldest of four children who were born all very close together, I learned very early on that in order to um, be seen in my family, I was usually helping other people. I had to be like the oldest, the most responsible, and I did go through a phase of rebelling against that and but n- none of my needs were met as a child. I was ignored for the for a for a better way to put it. Um so I I uh, what you talk about that so what happened then is that I realized that by helping other people I was rewarded for that by putting my own needs aside by not asking for things and by helping other people I was socially acclaimed I was rewarded for selfless acts of caring so I believed in my goodness I I received my validation as a child externally as a caregiver to the people around me so you grow up You've no idea what your needs are because you were never taught. You don't know how to express your needs because you were never taught how to do that. All goes into the shadow and suddenly we save and help other people. And all behind it is this magical belief. We say it out loud, it might sound like if I take care of them long enough, then sooner or later they'll take care of me too. But as we've already learned, this rarely happens. And often, what results is that the saviour spirals into depression, as as I did many times. So they fail to see that they themselves are heading straight for victim through their enabling and disabling responses. So they have these do-gooders find it very hard to hear themselves referred to as a victim. Even when they complain about how mistreated they are, right? So a martyr basically turn a savior will turn into a martyr. Oh, I do everything for everybody. Nobody does anything for me. I'm, you know, uh bend over backwards, but I never get the same back. Um, or if you know, if you do something for somebody and you don't get enough praise or recognition for it all that starts to come up and you start to turn into a martyr, which is just another word for victim in the triangle. So you feel used, you feel at the mercy of everybody, you feel betrayed um, hopeless. So you're in that kind of martyr phase of a rescue or dance around the triangle. After all I've done for you, this is the thanks I get. No matter how much I do, it's never enough. Or if you love me, you wouldn't treat me this way. And I think that a saviour's greatest fear, certainly my greatest fear, is that they will end up alone. And they believe that their total value comes from how much they do for other people. It's difficult for them to see their worth beyond what they have to offer in the way of stuff or service. You know, the the scramble to make themselves indispensable is palpable and it's in order to avoid abandonment. But saviours are actually usually oblivious to the crippling dependency that they foster. So they're unaware of the, the messages they send through their their um, interaction with others. So the more someone rescues someone else, the less self-responsibility is taken by the ones they care about. So let's think about a... Uh, Kids, for example. So the devouring mother archetype. We you know that and you know I've seen that a lot. So a mother will and men do it too, you know, this is just an example. You can apply it to many things. But a mother will make all the decisions for their child, they won't they think they know best, and then the child gets to their teens and starts to rebel, can't make and what happens is that then that the children can't make good decisions, they don't know how to think for themselves, they don't know what their needs are, they don't know how to meet their own needs. And the parent then turns into the victim because the child will then usually turn against the controlling element of the saviour archetype. Um, there there are many, 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 many very different scenarios where you can see the the, the crippling dependency, where you can see the... The way that the savior acts is highly disempowering for those who are um, yeah for those who have to put up with it now where you're where you're interacting with a deep victim the victim will be quite happy thank you very much that you are there to save them and if you really recognize yourself in this podcast and you think oh, I need to make some changes then you can expect some backlash. Because the victim will switch to the perpetrator, no doubt. You've always been there for me before. How can you be so selfish? Why are you not helping me? They will do everything to keep you in your saviour role. So that's really, when you start to make the transition out of saviour, it's really tough. I mean, for me, thinking of some examples for my family. um, uh, Yeah, so... I was always the one who kept all the appointments, I was always the one who knew when everybody was meant to be at the dentist or the doctors or school or things, and it was me and my husband and my daughter Eve, so one day I said, right, I'm not going to do that anymore, but I, at the time, I was the only one who drove, I was the driver of the family, so I put everybody on Apple calendar and I said, if you need me to do anything for you, you need to put it in the calendar. So if you've got an appointment, I mean, Eve was about 14 at the time, 15, so well old enough to be able to know these things. Put it in the calendar. If it's not in the calendar, I'm not taking you. So I thought that was a really good way to start. And and they just were like, yeah, yeah, that's great, no problem. And they didn't. And they began to come to me and say, will you take me here? Will you take me there? And I said, no, it's not in the diary. And then the backlash to start with was quite marked, but it wasn't law and I stood my ground. I really did stand my ground, and it wasn't long before everything started to go in the diary, so I didn't have to think about it. I just could look at my diary on any given day and be like, "Okay, well, I've got to take X here and Y there." Now, obviously, we lived in the. For those of you who don't know, we did live in the middle of nowhere. I did need to drive, but if you know, if you're in a city or somewhere with good transport links, and you've got a fifteen-year-old child and a husband, then they can they can make their own way. The only reason we did it that way is because there wasn't any way for them to to make their own way, so that was one way that we did it. There was a backlash um I've lost friends over it for sure um people who were just deeply in the victim state and couldn't cope with the the couldn't cope with the lack of save saving they just stopped talking to me. I was fine with that um the the wider my wider family unit found it very difficult. To have me not in that role. And now. And I'm going to go into this in a bit more detail. In a minute. I know when I need, when I can help. And I know when I can't. But I did go through a very long phase. Maybe a year of just like not helping anybody ever. Hardly with anything. And just letting people make, do their own thing. I mean occasionally. If, occasionally I would. If there was literally no other way. For something to happen. And I was asked outright for help. Then I would. But generally speaking, I just didn't. Just removed myself from that entirely and it was hard. But now I have a much better balance and I have a process that I go through when I'm looking to support someone with something, which I'm going to go into in the activities and journey section shortly. So, what I'd like to do now is just run through some things that you can think about to, um, to you know, to help you to see if being a saviour is something that you struggle with, right? So am I helping this person avoid natural consequences, right? So, for example, we're going out the other day. My husband looks like he was going to pick up his warm jacket and didn't. And I was away to be like, oh, you probably need your jacket, eh? But why is that anything to do with me? He, it's nothing to do with me. And he didn't take his jacket, and he was freezing. But the next time, he will remember his jacket, and he will do it on his own. And it's nothing to do with me. It's simple things like that that make such a difference. That's a savior. Is getting involved in other people's stuff when it's none none of your business, and then they don't experience natural consequences, so they don't learn from it. I'm the same, my husband does the same for me, when I look like I'm going to do something and I don't, he just, he just unless it's dangerous, obviously. And then we all learn, in our own way, what's what we need to be doing, and we take full responsibility for things. Is my action helping them to get better? Is my action helping them, in some way, to get better? I think it- I don't think I like the way I phrased that. Is my action helping them in some way? Or is it to make me feel better? Am I being invited to help? That's a big one for a saviour. A lot of the time people just make a passing comment like, Oh, you know, I'm a bit eh low on cash this month. I'm gonna have to watch what I'm doing. Doesn't ask you for any money. It's not said anything. But do you feel the need then to jump in with both feet and offer help or a solution to that? It's none of your business and you weren't asked for help. Okay, and then have a think about what your fears are when you don't help. And and think about whether you can challenge those fears. So the family or whoever won't like me. People might complain or not be happy. My job might be in jeopardy. I will feel like I'm not being effective as a loved one. I feel like I'm not able to help. I'm not doing the best I can. So some simple fears Um, around the saviour. And I think that one of the most difficult things As women anyway, I mean, I'm a woman, most of my listeners are women. I know that there's some wonderful guys as well that I work with. But I can't speak to the experience of men for this archetype because I'm not a man. Um, But I am a woman and a lot of the women I work with suffer from this. And it's this idea that you're absolutely um, defined by how much you help other people. By how much you give of yourself, by how many how by how you look after your kids, by how you look after your elderly parents, by how you look after everybody in the office, how you look after your husband, by how you look after your friends, it's a deep seated need, and it is fundamental to many people's lives. So what I understand will be difficult about this podcast and which was very difficult for me is that I had to change my whole life. It felt like I was changing my entire existence. It felt like I was stripping away everything I knew about myself. And I had to rebuild myself from the ground up. It was massive. So I really want to acknowledge the um, the nature of... Realization when it comes to this archetype, because I know that so many of us struggle with it. So, if this is you and you're like, Oh my god, that is my life, that is what I've always done, what you will struggle with are feelings of shame, guilt, fear. You might just run away and say, No, that I, this is just the way I am. I'm, you know, I. I'm destined to help people. That's why I'm here. That's why I was put on this earth. And then, and, and, you know, there's not much will change. But if you've listened to this podcast and there's something twanging on your heartstrings, something singing to your soul about empowerment and about true holding space if you're a practitioner, about becoming your own person, about cutting the binds that hold us, especially as the saviour archetype is often given to us by society, as a whole, as well. If if you wish to break free from this, it will be difficult for you. And it will be difficult for everybody around you as well. So in the next section, we're going to do some exercises. I've got a journey for you to do, as usual. But also, there's an actual exercise, questions that you can ask, and, and an example of how you can apply those questions. But fundamentally at the end of the day being a saviour is a disempowering, unpleasant, rather gross way to live for me. And by breaking the bonds of that archetype my life changed for the better. And whenever I slip back into it, which I do, I had a whole thing with it last year actually, a whole big journey with it last year. I had to to go back to the beginning and and do the work again because it's so fundamental to so many of us, to how so many of us are and how we interact with the world that it's, it's not an easy thing. But one step at a time, one foot in front of the other and just go at it with determination. Communicate with those around you. Let them know that this is what's changing so that they can feel safe. So, for example, if you've got a partner and a family and you say look this is my new project okay I'm working with this Savior archetype, but I can't do this for you anymore and I'm not going to do it anymore you need to be prepared for that let's do it together here's this is the drama triangle these are this is what I'm trying to achieve and bring your family and your friends with you or at least the ones who are willing to do the work anyway that can be really helpful um so do remember that okay So we're going to move on to section two. So if you want to go and grab yourselves a pen and a piece of paper and we'll get started with the activities and journeys section. Hi and welcome back to part two. So the first thing I'd like you to do this week is I'd like you to journey with your guides to the spirit of empowerment. Ask to be shown energetically what it means to escape the bonds of the saviour and ask for a healing to support you to make this shift. So that's super simple journey this week, your journey into the spirit of empowerment. I'm going to ask to be shown energetically what it means to escape the bonds of the saviour and then ask for a healing to support you to make this shift. All right? Now once you've done that, I'm going to talk you through something that I do and then give you an example so when I I ask myself five questions when I need to identify um when I'm gonna get dragged into a drama triangle and these questions I believe originally were from Claude Steiner I think um I think that I can't honestly remember where I got them but I've done some research to try and remember today and I'm pretty sure it was um, that's where I originally got this idea from. So you answer five questions, yes or no, honestly. And you count the number of yeses, the number of noes. Any more than two noes and you you're, you don't do anything. And these are the questions. Do I want to do it? Super simple. Do you actually want to do it? Is it any of my business? Is it any of your business? Can you do it? Is it feasible? Do you have time logistically? Is it within your skill set? Were you clearly asked to do something? And this one's a good one, the last one. Am I doing less than 50%? So the the person who's asking for help is taking some responsibility. You're not doing everything. So here's a here's an example. So, Say a friend asks me to borrow um, 500 quid to pay his rent. So let's take that as an example. Do I want to do it? Do I feel like lending him money? So I could say, well, yes, he's asked before and he's always given me it back. It's never been a problem. Or no, actually, he's he's done this before and and I didn't get the money back the last time and the last time I needed help, he didn't actually help me so I don't really feel like helping him this time. So that would be a no. So do you want to? Now this brings up guilt usually for people who are new to this work but just what do you want? Start to really connect with that as an idea. is it any of my business? So you could think, yes, he's family, he's close family, he's helped me in the past. Or you could say, no, you know what, I'm not a bank. He has other people who he can help. He's got his own family, he has a partner, he has wealthy parents, whatever it is. It's actually none of my business. I don't need to be getting involved in this. Can I do it? Well, actually, yes, I earn enough money and I've got savings, I can totally help. Well, no, I can't do it because I don't have that much money and if I lend him the money, I'm going to get into problems myself, potentially, or definitely. So that would be a no. Was I clearly asked to do something? Yes, he asked me very specifically for what he needed and he told me when he would give me the money back. No. No. Because he only mentioned that he doesn't have money in a conversation because he didn't ask at all. He he just mentioned it. And because of that, I feel like I have to jump in and help him. So that's a good one Were you clearly asked to do something. Am I doing less than 50%? Did I find this one so helpful? Yes, because actually he needs £1,000 to pay his rent and he's only asking for half. So I'm doing less than 50%. That could be one way to look at it. No, he needs all of the money and he asked for the full rent, £500 so I'm putting in 100% of the effort. I mean, obviously that one's not so cut and dry there can be other things to that um, it depends on the circumstances but what is this person doing about this predicament for themselves? So, so in this imaginary case you've got, you know, two no's and three yeses, and then so you don't you don't lend the money. So naturally, your key, your um natural impulse would be just to lend him the money because that's what you want to do. You're drawn to do it. You need to do it. You need that external validation. But now that you've got this tool, you can see that the result is likely counterproductive. Either it's none of your business, he's not taking responsibility for himself, he doesn't give you money back when you ask, all these different things. So to say yes, you would be you would be being pulled into a potential drama triangle there. So you won't say no. So you can think about ways to say no. And um all this information, by the way, is on the show notes. So if you're scribbling furiously, don't worry if you've missed anything because you can go to centerforshamanism.com forward slash seventy-one and you'll get the show notes there. So you can answer people in unexpected ways. This just doesn't apply to the lending money. This applies to, to any situation. Oh, so you could say, oh, it looks like you have a problem. What are you going to do about it? Oh, it looks like you're feeling really bad or really angry about that. You know, tell me tell me more about your issue. Or a little bit harsher, actually what you've done is unacceptable. Say they've... Um, actually find out that this friend to use the previous example has gone out on a shopping spree or bought a new car or something they're responsible and therefore doesn't have rent money you know you can say actually I, I can't help you with that you need to find a way to make that up for yourself maybe you need to go and take back some of the clothes that you bought so you're setting boundaries there you can move away sometimes it's really hard to say these things and think about these things right away so you can say I can't give you an answer to that right now I need to think about it Get up and leave distance yourself go to the bathroom leave the situation you can set up clear boundaries for example oh you know i'd quite like to go to the cinema but right now i don't have the time to do that or i see why you would ask me to do that but that's clearly not my responsibility so i'm not going to so you can be very upfront when you're moving out of a saviour space, when you're dealing with a victim. Um, so hopefully you find those helpful. I mean, I really, really did find them super helpful. Do I want to do it? Is it my business? Can I do it? Was I clearly asked to do something as a big one as well, guys. So like sometimes you just rush in when you've never been, you've not been asked. So what I find when I made these changes is that when I only did some, when I was clearly asked to do it, eighty percent of my perceived responsibilities simply disappeared because I wasn't asked. So that's a really good one. And I'm doing less than fifty percent, which really does set you up for success. Sets you up, sets the victim up for success as well, or the person who's asking for help. Um, yeah. So overall, you're looking to regain empowerment in these situations you want to recognize a victim when you see it you want to recognize your own savior tendencies you want to recognize when you are creating victims because often saviors create victims the same as victims create saviors it's a very strange dynamic um and these questions can really help with that so do nip over to the show notes and um have a wee read of those put them into practice try them out can't wait to hear all your feedback in the group this week. There's loads of feedback on the the victim archetype last week, and a lot of you had said, "Oh, I'm looking forward to the saviour archetype to see how that ties in." So they're all very closely linked. the the three um, the three archetypes. And next week's episode, we're going to be looking at the perpetrator. And at what I find was, as by just as a heads up, was that the one that most people that I've worked with, find the most difficult to admit to as being the perpetrator. It's fascinating. So next week's one might surprise you and it might surprise you how quickly when you listen to all three episodes, how quickly we can flip between the three archetypes as well. It's fascinating stuff. So thank you so much for listening and I will see you all same time, same place next week. hey thank you so much for listening we love it we love you we love connecting with you on our podcast we're really pushing our facebook community right now it is where all the just shamanic stuff happens so if you'd like to join us in that community you'll find us on facebook and look for the center for shamanism community group and we'll see you there